Welcome to the First Time Facilitator Podcast. Whether you're a first-time facilitator or a seasoned pro, listen in for tips and tricks to make a bigger impact at the next workshop you deliver. And now, your host, if you could play any instrument, you'd choose the saxophone, Leanne Hughes. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Leanne Hughes, and I'm here to help you book out five more workshops for every workshop that you deliver. Now, last week on the show, it was a solo episode where I was sharing how I think and design and really reimagine what a three and a half hour virtual workshop could look like. And I was really challenging my own mindset that I had last year that I could never deliver anything over two hours. It would be a major issue. I just wouldn't be able to do it. Well, I was wrong. You can create energy and interaction on virtual sessions that are over the two hour mark. This week, I'm delighted to bring you an interview with my guest who took up an amazing opportunity as a first-time facilitator that then opened up insane learning and facilitation opportunities. And the example that he shares in this episode of saying yes is so encouraging. I hope that after you listen, if you've been unsure about anything, you're not too sure that you should pursue something, or even if you're actually ready, well, I'd say listen to this and maybe consider about jumping in and giving that thing, whatever it is for you, a go. My guest today is Corey Ashu, the founder of Andina Advisory. Corey is a bilingual executive. During his university studies, he moved to Mexico to learn Spanish and to live the USA-Mexico relationship from a different perspective. This experience awakened an attraction to difference and change, a belief in the power of relationships and humane instincts, and a passion for Latin America and the world, all of which has shaped who Corey is today and his contributions to clients. And he's currently a member of the World Economic Forum's Mining and Metals Future of Work Task Force. I don't want to ruin the story. You'll hear Corey explain his career development, where he's been as part of this conversation. So he shares so much more, including the difference between being an external consultant to being in the senior leadership team inside an organization. I really like his perspective on this, how to deal with unpredictable opportunities that open up doors to learning the importance of being attentive, observant for things that are happening in facilitation. And also, this is what I love, and no one else has really mentioned it on the show, using your break time as the most critical time to process what has transpired in the workshop. I hope while listening to this and afterwards you feel inspired by this conversation as I did chatting to Kuri. Don't forget when the conversation is over, you can join our community of over 1,500 facilitators in our free Facebook group called The Flip Chart. If you'd like to support the show and my ideation ideas and my caffeine addiction, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Leanne Hughes. And I'd love to encourage you to, to reach out to Kuri, let him know what you thought of the show what you'll do differently in your facilitation and the decisions that you make in your life as well. You can find a link to Corey's details, LinkedIn, all of that over at firsttimefacilitator.com forward slash episode 182. And a shout out to Marcelo Maccioni who connected us as well. Thanks, Marcelo. Now onto the show. I am delighted to welcome onto the First Time Facilitator podcast, Corey Ashu. Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Leanne, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I really want to dive into your story. I've heard a lot of wonderful things about you. Shout out to our mutual friend, Marcelo. You have traveled all around the world delivering wonderful workshops. How did you find your career in facilitation? Was it something that you aspired to when you were younger? What's your story? So I can't say I aspired to it when I was younger. In fact, probably the most honest answer is that I fell into it in the context of other work that I was doing in a global consulting firm. My story, my story starts in the Northeast of the U.S. I'm originally from the state of New Hampshire. 
And over the course of my life, the easiest way to describe it is I've just kept moving south. And first I went, I went south to uh, University of North Carolina. In North Carolina, I went to Davidson College and then moved south to Atlanta, Georgia, lived in Atlanta for almost 13 years. And that wasn't far enough south. So I moved all the way down to almost the bottom of South America and live currently in Santiago, Chile. There's not much further south I can go. I suppose could start coming back up north the other side. And when I started my career, about three years after undergrad, I moved into a large uh, global consulting firm and I was doing executive assessment, executive development. And that's the work that through kind of chance, through the colleagues I started to work with, I got exposed to the facilitation world. Can we talk about that? You said you sounded quite young, you undergrad. Now you're working with executives. How did that feel? How old were you then? About 25. Were you a little bit intimidated? How did you find your confidence and feet there? Yeah, in fact, before kind of front of the room facilitation, I was doing some of the high level interaction with senior executives in the higher education and nonprofit space in the executive search industry. And at that point, I was, I was very young. I was 24 years old. The firm at the time, I like to say they, they took a punt on me with very little experience and just hopefully I presented a pretty good image at the time. And I joined a team that was working, as I said, with those senior leaders. And I cut my teeth and learned in terms of interacting with leaders at that level, with boards, just by doing, just by trial and error in the moment, being on my feet and learning from those around me. I love that. I think a philosophy I always really share on the show is time on your feet and just jumping in sometimes before you're ready. And that can really, this show is called First Time Facilitator, but same as you, Corey, that's how I discovered, was just basically learning and making mistakes. So so then you spent some time with this global consulting firm. You've now got your own consulting business. Tell us about that transition. Like, when did you really get the confidence and think, oh, I could actually go out on my own and do this? (laughs) I'm probably still looking for that confidence, to be honest (laughs) with you, but I'm doing it. And that's back to your point about always being on your feet and time on your feet, learning, making the mistakes, but really having the confidence and the willingness to jump in, to make mistakes, to learn, to own what you are and what you bring and not try to be something that you're not. I think that was all at play. But for me, the transition from consulting, I actually had a double transition. I went from consulting, I went into a company. I was on a senior leadership team, senior HR leadership team with the largest private Chilean copper mining company and spent two years in the leadership team looking after organizational effectiveness, which was a lot of change management work and helping different project teams align their approaches to change and how they would bring diverse teams to bear for the challenges they were facing on the operations. So I was two years in a company as well, learning from that side. And now I've transitioned back into the consulting world by founding my own firm based in Chile and having a go at it out there on my own at this point. Amazing. Can we talk about that transfer of you being an external consultant and what happened and what shifted for you? What did you learn? There was, I had a guest on my podcast. His name was Adam Musto and he talked about like the postcode rule, not in in terms of dating, but he's saying, well, the fact is if you're an external person coming into an organization, you can say things and people automatically respect you because you're external. Uh, They seem to value your opinion more rather than being an internal person. And I've certainly noticed that when I was working internally, Mm -hmm. I'd say things then a consultant would come in and say the same thing and, and people would seem to listen to that. So how did you go How did you go working internally? And uh, I guess, did you, the struggles that you were working with executives prior, did you really feel that when you were on the inside? Yeah, it's something that I identify with very much based on my own experience. Certainly coming in you're, as a consultant, as an external consultant to any organization, you're being paid for your opinion, for your intervention, for your thoughts, your perspective, what have you. 
And that is, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, it got me into a mindset of I'm going into a team, I'm going into an organization, I'm contributing something, I'm here for an established reason, they're looking for something from me, and that's the basis on which we build the, the, the work relationship. Inside of an organization, first of all, it was an experience that I wanted to have. I knew that for my career, for my own learning, going, working in the line, being on a leadership team on the inside, on the other side of the desk from consultants who come in and, and work with me, I knew it would be valuable to have that experience. It's something that I wanted to do. So the lessons there, I think you're spot on. I think it, it really is a shift once you go inside. Uh, the need to then realize, you know what, I'm approaching probably with a similar consulting mindset that I've used to do all of my work through my career up to this point. I can still use that, but it's a con- there's a constant need to remind myself that my role in the system is different now. I'm part of the team. I am one of. I'm not always looking in. I'm really part of. And so owning that and understanding that what I do has an impact on the inside and other areas and vice versa, that external dynamic is gone, is just so so critical to success. And it's a learning experience. I think everybody who's the consulting side would probably benefit from in the course of their career. Particularly, it does really give you that empathy in, in relating to those challenges that occur. And it's great that you saw that as a big sort of professional step and not as a step yeah. back. Like going in was actually... A, a massive growth opportunity for you. No, and I think one of the things that has really stuck with me, and before I did this, before I stepped into that role, it probably would have felt pretty simple or basic, but now it, it really is profound to understand truly that what I do and how, as a, in my case, as a corporate function, how that impacts the operation where the business happens. Uh, this is a mining context. True understanding of the relationship between the support functions and the corporate center and what's happening on the ground is something that I didn't understand to the fullest extent until I had to live it. And it gave me a different perspective. Now that I'm back on the external consulting side, I know I've got a different perspective when I'm talking to clients now, thinking about how my work is not only going to impact the immediate client, but then where the rubber meets the road, if you will, on the business side. So the perspective and the change in kind of mindset is so critical. It's one of the biggest learnings I had coming out of that role. Yeah, it's funny because um, I've I worked in mining previously as well in a global, I don't say HR, like an OD role. And it's yep. open joke. There's, al- there's always conflict, you know, between the, like, maintenance and production and then support right. functions and the sites. And it's definitely real. Corey, thanks for sharing that perspective. I'd love to find out about your facilitation career and like managing group, group workshops and group dynamics. But what I love about what you've done is you've worked in just in some incredible parts of the world. Can you just share maybe a story of when you actually traveled to your first international location? and what that experience was like for you. I think it's the dream for a lot of people that are facilitating. We love this career because of the variety and where we can go with it. Yeah, well, first of all, tell people where you've been and then if you can share a story, that'd be great. I've done work on the ground in about 15 countries, I think is the correct count, on all six inhabited continents. I'm still waiting for Antarctica, but the others I've ticked off the list. I go back to a point you made earlier, Leanne, around just throwing yourself in and even the experience on paper isn't always the most important thing. Sometimes you just get thrown into a situation that you have to deal with, learn from, and and kind of dance around in in the moment. And that describes my first overseas assignment where a couple of months into my consulting career, I was thrown on an airplane, landed in Bogota, Colombia, turned around, got on another airplane, landed in a little city in the jungle in the north of the country. And there was a guard waiting for me at the airport. And we hopped in a car, uh, a couple of automatic weapons in the car. We rode two hours into the jungle and I landed in in a guarded compound 
a couple of miles, uh, a couple of kilometers outside of a small town. And I did some senior leadership assessment interview work and uh, and one-on-one facilitation work with some leaders at a large mine in the area. That was literally my first consulting trip. Yeah. Never had done anything like it before. The reason in my case, I had at least some abilities with the Spanish language. And so that was really the only the only qualification that the consulting team needed to send me down there because no one else had that. That was an incredible first experience. Were you more sort of, when you went on that trip, like my heart rate, I was just like, whoa, that's intense for a first trip away. I think my first trip was Canada, which wasn't so bad. The the hardest thing about that was just driving on the other side of the road after a 30 hour flight. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, that whole story sort of in Canada really came. That's why this workshop, this podcast started. The fact that you speak Spanish, that is a huge differentiator for you. The fact that you speak another language. And then I imagine now after living in Chile, your Spanish is just accelerated and, and advanced now. Would you suggest that was in terms of your career, that would have been like, like you said, you were the only person in the company that had that. So that, would that be career advice for anyone listening, like learn another language? It certainly worked in my experience. I took the decision during university to go live for six months in a city in Mexico, in Guadalajara, Mexico. And that decision was specifically to learn Spanish. It's something I knew I wanted. I wanted a modern language. I'd actually been studying Latin for years and decided, well, this is fascinating. I've learned a lot about language and structure of language, but I'd like to have something that I can use today as well in a spoken way. So went to Mexico, learned it. I really gained a lot of appreciation for the, the culture and not just Mexico, but Latin America in general. And so I kept seeking out travel experiences and working experience over the course of my consulting career in Latin America. And with my Spanish, that got better and better every time I, I that became easier and easier. And yes, now having lived in Chile for almost three years, yeah, my Spanish is, is pretty darn good. Although my Mexican friends would tell you that I'm not speaking much Spanish at all. I'm speaking Chilean and the, and the Chileans uh, yes. would ask, you know, the, the accents, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah. but yeah, it's been an advantage for me, the language yeah. piece. And quite frankly, it just gives such a beautiful opportunity to really interact with people on a much different level when you're able to speak their language. I, I, we could have another podcast about the importance of multiple languages, in my view. I think it's just a fascinating thing. Yeah, maybe that's a podcast that you can start. But it'd have to be a bilingual podcast, I'd imagine. Indeed, of course. <laughs> the irony of, of it. Yeah. Two episodes a week, that'd be tough. Now let's talk about your experience facilitating group experiences and mm. how you found it. So it sounds like you got your you learned how to run these events just through trial and error. Did you do any sort of courses or did you have any role models within your organization, people that were telling you like, okay, this is how you run a workshop? Yeah, so the coursework, I haven't done much coursework, in fact. It yeah. really has been, the most of it has been learning by doing. But any coursework I did started several years after my first facilitation experiences. My learning was essentially in the, in the old traditional apprentice type model. My first, I remember my first team workshop, the reason I got into it again, just invitations that come your way when you're working for a global firm. I, it was really a lot of privileges uh, from that perspective. But I got an email from a partner at that time, and it was just a very open question, something along the lines of, look, I've sold a team facilitation project multi-site team facilitation project. I need someone to help me build the program. And in three months, we need to be on the ground in South Africa and Mozambique delivering the program. And I think in that email, I probably just saw travel to South Africa and Mozambique and said, (laughs) I said, yes. I mean, and that was probably what really kicked off me learning to facilitate it and becoming a facilitator. It's funny when I think back on moments of life, if I had said no, or if that hadn't come, would I have gone to the facilitation? Yeah, I don't know, but that was part of my story. Very similar story to me. Yeah. The fact that I was working in a global company and I didn't know another language, but what I could do was I was confident enough in running a workshop or just 
confident enough to say yes to it and to figure it out later. And, and that, yeah, it got me into Mongolia, Indonesia, Canada, mm. some beautiful Moran Bar in central Queensland. It's some lovely places. And yep. it's interesting. I have a, a Facebook group where facilitators around the world contribute and ask questions. And a lot of people ask about certification. And mm. I'm the same as you. I haven't really learned anything formal. There's a certification in Australia. It's called the Cert for in Training and Assessment, but it doesn't give you that ability to engage. And honestly, the best experience, as you said, is being an apprentice, I think, and finding a yep. co-facilitator and getting that feedback. Sometimes I love getting the brutal feedback as well, things that you don't even know that you're doing that someone can then echo back to That's you. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And I had the, the first partner I worked with and worked with him extensively. And in fact, this was 11 years ago, it started. And I spoke with him yesterday. We're still, we've moved on to different places, but the relationship is still very close. He was extremely good at, first of all, he knew I had little to no actually on the ground experience in this that I was learning. And so he was able to shift his perspective and his approach to me based on that, which obviously was a good thing. And one of the most valuable things in my learning was Though I played a chair two facilitation role in the room with the client, on every break we had, this was back, of course, when we would get into rooms and obviously not a pandemic setting, but every break we would have, he would immediately pull me aside. And the question was, so what did you see? And he just always pushed me. What did you see? What did you see? What did you hear? What did you see? And it just got me into this rhythm of really observing, watching being so attentive, watching things that were happening without listening to the words and vice versa and mixing all that. But just the constant, what did you see? What did you see was so useful for me. And it stuck with me. And I try to, whenever there's a break and facilitation immediately, what did I see there? What did I hear? Take a couple notes on that, come back to it. And now as people are working with me, I'm asking them the same questions, but that was so valuable for me so early on in my career. That's a wonderful question. I think it's often those break times, they can, we really got to manage them, right? So I know when breaks, I'm like, I'm always thinking ahead, like, okay, so what are we doing after morning tea? And then you've got people running up to you. You also need to go to the bathroom, grab a cup yeah. of coffee. It can be pretty hectic for us as facilitators. So to have that sort of focused question on the break yeah. rather than at the end of the day going, you know, what happened then? Exactly. I love that. Wow. Very powerful. It, it was fantastic. And I'll tell you one thing I learned along the way and pretty early on and, and a lot from this particular partner of mine, breaks were not breaks for me. They were not breaks for the facilitator. <laughs> and then I probably, I went into it with a whole different approach thinking, okay, now I can go get my cookie and the coffee, <laughs> cup of coffee. No, they, these aren't breaks for me. It's some of the most critical time to process what just happened. And really what's even more important is, yes, as you said, what are we doing after the tea break? What's happening on the schedule? But based on what just finished, the what's the word necessity or the possibility of really having to throw out whatever you had planned that's coming next and just shifting in the moment is high. And you have to be ready for that as a facilitator. And those breaks are actually the, the moment when some pretty tricky and important decisions uh, often need to be made. Yeah, instead of break time, sometimes it's scrambling time. I remember yeah. I, I was running an event for, for about 30 people and they just weren't having the conversation they needed to have. Like they were there to have a conversation, but it was very much surface level. And during that 20 minute break, I'm like, okay, what have I got that can bring this out? And it ended up just being, oh, just bringing our chairs, let's sit in a circle. And it became yeah. an open dialogue thing that wasn't in any agenda. But I think as a first time facilitator, I probably wouldn't have done it. I would have stuck to the script and just gone off. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And I would have too. And then you learn that there are other responsibilities of a facilitator as well, particularly Maybe I wouldn't even distinguish kind of the lead and the second facilitator, just any facilitator. 
I've begun to see the role as from a real caring perspective as well as taking care of the people who are there in the room with me. And that can be around the gamut. I've had in, in a team session, someone admit to me and the whole group that the week prior they had tried to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. What do you do in that moment? And they can run from something so serious and grave to, well, gee, the air conditioner went out. I don't know if you've been in uh, Southern Mozambique in the summertime, but if the air conditioner goes out, the dynamic in your room is quite different. And so taking care of people from the perspective of let's get this air conditioner fixed and let's not rest until it's fixed because I've got to care for my people in the room runs a whole perspective. Oh my gosh, it really does. And I think a lot of the time we put up the responsibilities on ourselves to sort out. And something that I've learned through the show is also asking the group, what do you need? And how can we work through this together rather than saying, yeah, I'm yeah. going to be the parent, I'm going to take responsibility. It's having that care and also using the group to figure it out. Oh, I love that. Using the group to figure it exactly right. It's such an important point because, and I would actually equate this to my early early mindset as a facilitator. My initial thought was always, well, I'm there because I've got the answer. I know how to do it. I know how to, I'm going to direct this orchestra and they're going to follow like obedient school children all the time. No, (laughs) that's not it at all. And so really using the knowledge that's in the room for everything from, like you say, how do we solve some side issue that's going on to how do we arrive at the goal or the answer that we're trying to work toward the, the purpose of the workshop is use what's in the room with you. Absolutely. Yeah, as you're saying, I'm just really picking up some parallels between, say, like a first-time leader and a first-time facilitator. It's like, we need to know all the answers. We need to be professional and people looking to us. And then as you graduate, my favourite author, Michael Bungay-Stania, says it's like you can actually be a little bit lazier and sort of pull back (laughs) and use more questions (laughs) and get like the team, the group to... So there's a very similar learning curve. Because you do a lot of... You do workshops, but you do a lot of coaching as well. I'm curious as to the right mix. So people come to us because clients, we we want some behavior change. We want our leaders to start communicating and giving feedback, right? As an example, Uh, you you probably get that a lot, (laughs) the communication part. What's the right mix of work? Because I think sometimes we need a two-day workshop and they think that the problem will be solved. But I think we know that that's not the case. What do you find that seems to work in terms of a behavior change with an individual? Is it more coaching? Is it a combination of different things? It's an interesting question. Coaching, one-on-one coaching or coaching in a team setting or more of a a workshop approach. These are vehicles. These are mechanisms. I think you can set a goal that can be achieved through any variety of of mechanisms. I don't think there's just one way of, of doing it. So coaching may be one way of doing it, but I think most important is getting clear on what that goal is And then I just feel like awareness, the concept of awareness is so important. It starts with, let's say we're working with a senior leader, getting her, making sure she's aware of what she's doing, what her impact is, and then being able to connect the impact that she sees or that you as the coach help her to see, connect that back to, well, and you stated that your goal was this and we arrived over here what's going on there. So for me, it really starts with that awareness piece. And I look at my facilitation work, just like my coaching work as helping to ensure that the people that I'm working with have that level of awareness, because with that, then you're able to decide what you want to do to move forward. Yeah. The awareness piece, gosh, it's the biggest thing, isn't it? The whole, this whole process of life is just like a whole self-awareness piece and just like discovery, <laughs> yeah, which is it's absolutely crazy. Like you think you should know yourself, but then every day it's like, if, if you're paying attention, uh, you, you seem to learn a lot about what's going on. It's funny. I've had people in my workshops and they've been wonderful participants, like engaged and saying the right things. And I'll hear afterwards, oh, that person is like, 
the worst person on site or just <laughs> other feedback. And it's like, oh, what's going on there? What's the awareness for that person? And yeah, I find that really interesting. So when you're running these events, something, a, a very common theme that a lot of guests have said, it's about energy and the energy that you bring as, as a facilitator or a coach. How do you get ready then for, let's say you've got a, a one or two day event. What's your personal sort of, not morning routine, but how do you get into like a state where you can bring that energy to your workshop? Yeah, I work a lot on adrenaline and I work a lot on on urgency. So I'll call them workshop weeks. For me are weeks that I typically I don't sleep very much. I'm going over, I do take the time to go over what I want to do, what I want to say, what the design is. Because I know if we have to shift off of the design, we can do that. But I do want to have a clear idea of what at least I had thought of going in. And usually the pre-work we do with the client, there's a whole lot of information about the context that I'll be stepping into. And I want to make sure even more important for me than the design of what I'm bringing is the context that I'm walking into. What's going on for these people? What are, are, are they stepping out of in order to be in the room with me? What's going on outside of the room that they, they may have their minds on while we're together? I spend a lot of time thinking and making sure I understand that to the extent possible. That often keeps me awake <laughs> at night. But I would also say the other way I, I prepare, I tend to have a decent breakfast on the day of, not very heavy, but a decent breakfast on the day of. I need to have plenty of coffee nearby because I love coffee. Same. Um, and um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so those are just a couple of things. But for me, again, it's keeping my mind busy and really occupied with what is the context that I'm stepping into. Thank you for being so honest about the running on adrenaline. I've had a lot of guests on the show that I get so envious, like, oh, I'll get a great night's sleep. I'll drink all this water. I'll meditate the morning of. And I've tried meditating and slowing down. And I, everyone's like, you got to meditate. And I just, I go running. And that seems to be where I get into like a meditative state. But I'm the same as you, Kari. Like I, it's the adrenaline that really gets it going for me. And sometimes I've, I've got to calm myself down as well. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I, I have to try to, so for much of my career, when I was traveling to far corners of the world to do facilitation work, and I love to travel. And I once had a, a colleague I worked with for a number of years. He was from Puerto Rico. And he said to me after a couple trips to South America together, he said, you know, Corey, you are a traveler, not a tourist. And he made this distinction, traveler, not a tourist. And it took me a thinking about what does that mean? And it, you know, I really enjoy when I'm in someplace new or even someplace I've been before, but a place that's not my habitual place, if that makes sense, yeah. I actually get energy from that. I get energy from the simple interactions in a place that's different. I get energy from even sit in hotel lobbies and watch and observe, or I could sit in a restaurant by myself, have no problem doing that, just watching what's going on. And I would take all of that in and it might keep me up at night because not just the time change, but just because there's all those juices are flowing and, and ideas in my head. And I tried to bring all that into the room as well. It was a way if I felt if I could observe and be part of what was going on in the place where I was and bring a little bit of that into the, into the room as well. I thought my idea was that it would help me connect with the people in the room in a different way. Yeah. yeah. I needed to hear that line about traveler, not tourist. I always got FOMO. It's like, oh, I'm here in this beautiful city, but I'm like inside from eight till five or six every day. <laughs> so you'd actually love, I'll have to introduce you to Jacinta Cupid. She was on my show. She's a photographer, but she does facilitography. Uh, so it's all about oh, wow. street photography and being a great observer um, will help you be a better facilitator as well. So it kind of really links into what you've been sharing. I love it. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. 
Yeah. Corey, if we have listeners, I'd love to connect with you, find out more about the work that you do, just geek out on your travel photos. Where can we send them? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been I've been in a big nostalgic place in the last year plus. Like like I know many people have travel has really changed in the last uh, in the last 14 months. But you can find me. My company is called Andina Advisory. And you can go to our website. It's www.andinaadvisory.com. A-N-D-I-N-A. And that's where uh, you can find other content information for me. I don't have many travel photos on there, but the photo that I use on my main website page is a photo that I took uh, off the side of the road high in the Andes near the border with Argentina on the Chilean side. So I try to incorporate that travel experience anywhere I can. Yeah, that's super cool. Hopefully we can, the borders open and we can get around and start. And look, it'd be interesting actually to see the appetite of in-person workshops now as well, considering our big shift to virtual. So we'll see what happens there. Corey, thank you so yeah. much for being on the show. We just spun from topic to topic. So thanks for bouncing around. <laughs> I, I was like, everything you said, I'm like, oh, this can go here. And so it was really great to chat to you. And we'll pop a link to everything that you do in the show notes for this episode. Thanks again, Corey. Wonderful. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Leanne. Thanks so much for sticking around. You've reached the end of another episode of the First Time Facilitator podcast. Connect with the show at firsttimefacilitator.com or follow me on Instagram at Leanne Hughes to find out what I'm up to during the week. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with someone who will also appreciate the insight and make it easier for yourself and subscribe to the show in your podcast player of choice. Thank you so much for listening and chat to you next week.